Lights, please. And Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them to stay in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds, keeping watch of their flock by night. And three wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But that was just the beginning. And then came Santa Claus <laughs> with Rudolph, and there were Christmas trees, and lights, and presents, and ornaments, and there was the Nutcracker, and candy, and more presents, and the Elf on the Shelf, and more lights, and Spongebob. Oh, and there's fruitcake too. Yuck. And that's what Christmas is all about. Hey, Merry Christmas. Hey, just want to give a big shout out to our campuses at Santan and then at Scottsdale and everybody that's joining us online, man, just thank you for that. And uh, you realize that uh, you're going to be leaving here and you're going to spend some time with some really strange people. That from the time you were a little child, you were told were family members. But the reality is there's some very awkward moments in your near future. And I'm, I'm going to help you out with that. When, when the conversation goes kind of dry, when there's just nothing left to say, there's nothing better than a joke. So I'm going to give you the best Christmas jokes that you could possibly have. You're going to be the hit of your family gathering. Okay, so here you go. First one, ready? What do you call a broke Santa? Saint Nicholas. What do you call a deep-fried Santa? Crispy Kringle. How many reindeer does it take to screw in a light bulb? Eight. One to screw in the light bulb, the other seven to hold Rudolph down. Why is your job a lot like Christmas? Because you do all the work, and a fat man in a suit gets all the credit. <laughs> here's, here's the reality. You and I are going to leave this place. We're, we're all going to do Christmas a little bit different. Everybody's got their family tradition. We all kind of unwrap this thing just a little bit differently than everybody else. Matter of fact, to kind of prove that to you, I'm, I'm going to do a real quick survey. I'm going to ask you some questions. Don't raise your hand until I'm done asking the question. But we're going to do the survey. All right. So how many of you love Christmas music? No, 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 no. Don't raise your hand. I could have said, how many of you love Christmas music, but you're an axe murderer? And you raised your hand. And then I'm going to have to go, okay, let's call the authorities. They just confessed. Prosecute them to the full extent of the law. How many of you love Christmas music so much? That you actually start listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving and maybe even listen to Christmas music a few days after Christmas. Okay, all of you that have your hands up right now, we hate you. We just, you. All right, that's a strong word to use in church. We desperately dislike you. Okay? All right, all right, all right. So here, here's, here's another one. How many of you open your gifts on Christmas Eve? 
How many of you are willing to open some gifts on Christmas Eve Eve? How many kids in the room wish we opened gifts on Christmas Eve 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 Eve? All right. How many in the room say, no, 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 no. December 25th, that's the only day to open up gifts. Okay, you are evil in the heart. That's all I'm saying. The Grinch has gotten a hold of you. That is not the spirit of Jesus on you, all right? But you get it. We all all do this different. What we're about to go out and do and celebrate and be part of, it's all going to take on different variations. But there's one thing. There's one thing that every single one of us in this room is going to have in common this Christmas. And it's simply this. That God is writing a story in your life. There's not a person in this room that God is not tempting to write a story in your life. Now, I'll be honest... Sometimes we can't figure out what that story is or what God is doing in that moment. It can get super, super confusing. Matter of fact, some of us walked in this room and you went, wow. If God's writing something, I don't understand it because I just got to tell you, I I am so shook up right now. I had things happen to me this last year. I can't make sense of them. I can't see up for down right now. It just seems so absolutely unfair so wrong, so unexpected in my life. And if this is, if this is God's hand, then I'm just going to tell you I'm, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed in God. I'm more, I'm more than just a little shook up right now. There are some of us in this room, and we came here pretty messed up. See, the reality is uh, we've been living in a lifestyle, and we've been doing, we, we know, we, we, we know, no one even has to tell us that what we've been doing is stuff that God would be desperately disappointed with. And we know. Matter of fact, the truth is we feel pretty uncomfortable being in this room. Feels a little hypocritical to us. Because we know we're pretty messed up. There's some of us came to this room tonight and you're churched up. The reality is you came here because you get to mark a box. You get to go see, I went to Christmas Eve. And there's something about how we've been raised up in a legalistic past that says, hey, if I go to church enough times, or maybe if I read my Bible enough times, or if I say enough Hail Marys, somehow you reach a point where God is really, really pleased with you, and then you're on the good list. And the reality is tonight, you've checked all those boxes, and there's still a nagging ache in your heart that says... This can't be all it is. This is why the Christmas story is so powerful. Because you realize the Christmas story is a story about Jesus coming to a shook up, messed up, churched up world. And rewriting the story. And guys, here's what I think. Here's the mistake I think we make. We, we all too often, I think, get too far down the path with Rudolph and Frosty the snowman and all of that and we forget this. We forget the Christmas story is a real story that happened in a real place to real people. And that that first Christmas wasn't all tinsel and lights. That first Christmas was really messy. And if you would have stepped into that moment with Mary and Joseph, they would have said, we have no idea what God is doing with us right now. So do me a favor, grab your Bibles real quick, because we want to go back and inject ourselves into that first chapter of that first story. 
It's the book of Luke. And if you're not real familiar, if you go to the back of your Bible and work to the left, you're going to find this book of Luke. If you're looking for it on your iPhone, you're already there. It's Luke chapter 1. Tons of us are going to go home and we're going to read Luke chapter 2. But you realize the story starts in chapter 1. And it's confusing. And it is really hard to understand if you're living the story. So here's what I want you to do. Don't remember the end. Don't go to the end yet. Be Mary for a minute. Be Joseph in him for a minute and, and, and process the words that we're about to read the same way that you and I have to process life, just only knowing the present truth and having no understanding of what will come, just what is come. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, here it is. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Listen to Mary's response. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. How, how, how in the world, I mean, I'm a virgin. How, how can this happen? No one's going to understand. I'm 15 years old and I'm going to be pregnant out of wedlock. How can this possibly be the will of God? How, how is this good on any level? You realize my life is about to get thrust into a moment where there's really two options. One is they can stone me to death. The other is is that Joseph can put me away and then I will be an unmarriable single woman in our culture. How? How can this be good? Think about if you're Joseph. I guarantee if you're Joseph... There is no moment in your life when you were planning out your life that you thought, hey, I'm going to end up marrying uh, some little gal while she's pregnant with someone else's baby. That's the plan. If you're Joseph, that first Christmas is messy. And you are shook up and messed up. Now, here's what we know because we know the rest of the story. We know that God is about to intrude into the story. And this story that starts out as a mess is only the first chapter. And by the time God gets done writing this thing, it's going to be the greatest story of all time. This story is going to change the world. There are some people who say God doesn't write stories like that anymore. I think they're wrong. 
I think God is trying to write stories in every one of our lives. Just watch, you'll get what I mean. moments in life where we feel completely shook up, moments where our life seems to go off track and the story is going in a direction that you and I would have never written the story this way. The day the divorce papers come in the mail or you get the pink slip at work or someone close to you dies and we're left in those moments to ask the question, where's God and how come he's not intervening? He could change the outcome if he simply would. realize the Christmas story is about lives that were being absolutely shook up. You and I often skip to the end to know what God was actually doing, but you realize it wasn't that way for Mary or for Joseph. That's not how it began. That's why we're here in Nazareth, where the Christmas story begins. It's here that a teenage girl discovers that she's pregnant and has to find a way to describe to her family and her friends that this is actually something that God is doing. And I guarantee you that that generation was just as skeptical of her story as you and I would be if somebody told us that same story today. It's here in Nazareth that Joseph is going to discover that his fiance is pregnant. It's going to have to make the crucial decision of, do I still marry her or do I put her away? And he's going to be visited by an angel. I guarantee you in the midst of their lives, they were asking, God, where are you? And why are you doing this to us? You and I now know that God was actually writing the greatest story of all time in the midst of their problems. Mary's going to be eight and a half months pregnant. They'll go over horrible rocky terrain as they make a two-week journey down to Bethlehem. And it's actually in the midst of their problems that they're going to journey to a place where they can meet Jesus for the very first time. Some would say that God doesn't write stories like that anymore. But I would say to you that In our problems, God often is doing exactly what he did with Mary and Joseph. He's writing unbelievable stories, stories that change our lives, stories that show his power, that in the midst of our problems, God takes you and me to a place where we begin to meet Jesus. We got a phone call at about three in the morning um, saying we needed to get to the hospital right away. And we got there, the uh, crash cart was sitting outside his room. His name was Trevor, he was four years old. He started acting, you know, sick, like maybe coming down with a cold, the flu, something like that. And suddenly I hear him in the other room screaming at the top of his lungs. Um, I go running in there and he's laying on the bathroom floor just screaming bloody murder and holding his stomach and crying. So we went to urgent care. They did a a urine sample and 
finally came back with that saying, you know, something's really off with this, but, you know, we've done as much as we can do. They said, you need to go across the street to Channel Regional for, to the ER. Two or three hours later, um, there was a doctor standing there telling us that it was leukemia. They said that the cancer was moving so quickly that it must start chemo right away. They couldn't keep his oxygen level up at all, and, and they said, we're going to have to intubate him. They started showing us the numbers. You know, we learned all about these numbers, and, and it was to a point that we, you know, we knew there was no turning back. There was really not that much they could do about it. And they came to us and they said his heart was is damaged now. Um, from just the cancer attacked it. And they said he can't have chemo with this sort of heart um, issues. We just knew that this that was it. That was that this was going to be the last time that we were really going to to see him. Even though he's unconscious, we were uh, delaying the inevitable. And so we made the decision to turn off the ventilator. Um, and he was gone pretty quickly. The doctors and nurses packed up our bags for us that we had been living in the hospital for two months. We didn't want to go home. We didn't want to have to try to figure out how to be normal again, because what was that? Thankfully, we had a lot of support from church and from family and from friends, but, you know, it came to us to try to figure out what we were going to do. We still miss him here, obviously. There's, there's a big hole without him here, but knowing that he's in heaven and just enjoying the presence of God is is so comforting. And it was very hard to deal with at that time. Uh, but I knew that we could rely on God's strength um, and not our own. I feel like cancer is is a product of a broken world that we live in and not something that's, that Trevor did or we did. Our hope is always in Christ and just not ever losing sight of that. He loves us. He cares for us. He is always with us no matter what because that's what his word promises. Standing here at the temple wall, this is the very same temple that Jesus would have come to when he was a small boy. You get that the world that Jesus was born into was a hyper-religious world filled with thousands of rules. The rules were set up to help people be religious, to help them do things that would commend them to God. It was an incredibly churched-up culture. Matter of fact, every single year they would have come to this temple and they would have brought with them one of the choice lambs out of their herd. Matter of fact, it had to be a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. 
They then would present that lamb to the priests who would sacrifice it on their behalf, and then God would cover over their sins for a year. So then they had to come back year after year after year, each year sacrificing a lamb. What they missed was that Christmas was God providing the final lamb. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus went to the cross, he died there so that you and I could move from religion into an actual relationship with God himself. Ironically, it was religious people who ultimately had Jesus crucified, proving that you can be around a work of God and not actually know him. You can be churched up and not actually meet him. I grew up in Chicago. We went to a Catholic church, and I was very involved in that. I was uh, an altar boy, and then later on became uh, involved in a church choir. I had a lot of friends, some that were part of the church, some that weren't. Um, but as I got older, I didn't really feel very connected to church. One of the pivotal points for me was uh, around the uh, sacrament of confirmation. I didn't really understand it. Uh, up to that point, it had been pretty easy just to follow along with what people were doing, but confirmation kind of stumped me. I didn't understand it, and it seemed like the more I asked questions, the, the less answers I got. Going through my teenage years and going to college where I didn't have answers, I started uh, looking at other religions, thinking about other religions, and therefore I, I came to appreciate multiple religions, uh, which I, I didn't really perceive at the time, but it ended up kind of watering down what, what religion was supposed to be or what faith was supposed to be. There came a point in my life when uh, being self-driven really kind of ran out and, and failed on me. I, I really was looking for something more than what I'd found, and I, and I knew that the ways I was trying to go about finding things were not working. People would say, you know, well, you've, you've really got it together, and I would think, no, I really don't. I'm miserable on the inside, but I kind of hid behind that veneer of, you know, yeah, I've got everything. I've got the car, I've got the house, I've got the job, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, but I really didn't, it didn't feel that way. I looked in my rearview mirror and, and didn't like what I had become and I didn't like what I had left behind me and I didn't know how I would ever be uh, forgiven for that. I didn't know how, uh, you know, my life could be redeemed. That was how I started to learn about Jesus Christ, that there was uh, a forgiveness and there was a grace there for me. The real turning point in my life happened when my wife and I, we weren't married then, we'd started dating, and she invited me to go to church with her. And that was the first time that I had considered going back to church. Uh, it was the first time where I felt like that's where I should be, that's where I had belonged all along. And, you know, it was God speaking through her that said, you know, it's time to come back and, and, and try this again. The first time we went to Cornerstone, we felt like this was this was a church where uh, we could grow, and, and that's exactly what happened. 
Standing in a sheep cave just outside of Bethlehem where Jesus was born, there's urine and sheep feces on the floor, and to be honest, the ambiance is pretty hard to take. We've already talked about the idea that Jesus came for people who were shook up, people whose lives had gone off track and were turning out differently than they ever expected. We also talked about that he came for the churched up, people who were trying through good efforts and kind of man-made rules to make their lives pleasing to God. But maybe the most powerful part of the story is that Jesus came for the messed up. You know, when we visualize the place that Jesus was born, we have a very Western view. We kind of think of a barn. And yet the reality is that Jesus was probably born in a cave very much like this. The manger was probably actually a trough inside the cave for feeding the sheep. Think about that. The Son of God born in a sheep cave. Not in a palace, not in a rich man's home, not even in a hospital. Think about the care that you and I take to make sure that our children are born in a place that's clean and sterile. And yet the Son of God was born in a cave. Why? I think God was trying to make a point. I think God was trying to let you and I know that he's willing to come to wherever you and I are in our lives, no matter how messed up, no matter how dirty. Often we try to clean up our lives, and yet the story of Christmas is just the opposite, that Jesus was willing to come and meet us where we were. All of us have been born into sin. All of us have made a mess. We've all done things in our lives that we regret and wish we could take back or do over again. The point is simply this, that Jesus came to lead us out of our mess. My stepdad um, and my mom were looking for rehab for me and they were, uh, I mean, they spent, you know, months just trying to find me a place. They couldn't find an option for me because there was no place that would accept a 16-year-old heroin addict. Growing up, it was fairly normal for what I thought. Um, my parents divorced when I was five. Um, so I always rotated houses. I went over with my dad on the weekends and then my mom throughout the week. There was always drugs in the house. There was always alcohol in the house. He was an alcoholic. There was never like a whole lot of food to eat. You know, there was some good junk food. Um, but there was always beer. And we could hear them in the room and smell the pot that they were smoking. And that's when I started around 12, 13. I started experimenting with everything. And my stepbrother and I, you know, at night, we had a, a little table in the middle of our room. We had two twin beds on the ground. And uh, we had a little skate ramp type table thing. We put a glass mirror on top. We would crush up ecstasy or cocaine or Xanax. And we would do lines together all night. We would get fronted drugs and we would sell them and then we would give the cash back to our dealer and um, you know we'd get a profit from that so it was just always finding basically whatever we can do to make money. I got picked up, uh, got put on probation, that's when um, I got put into my first rehab and teen challenge. First two days I ran away, first two weeks ran away again, brought me back, I ended up getting caught. Um, had to drive about an hour and a half back to Casa Grande in the back of a cop car. Um, handcuff, which wasn't fun at all, and then had to go to Florence to spend two weeks in juvie. 
following summer, after a year after that, this is after my sophomore year in high school, um, I didn't come home one night. A cop picked me up and brought me home and says, he's not just sick. Like, he's going through, like, he's coming off drugs. Um, and, you know, they find, they get me to Desert Banner Hospital. I spent two days in ICU. Um, and then from there, I went into the detox part of it, and I was there for a week. The first four days, um, it was probably the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. I had blood in my stool as well as in my vomit. Um, so I was throwing up blood both ways. My great-grandparents, my mom, my dad, they, they came down to visit me. Um, and the doctor had told him that you should prepare for him not to make it out of here alive. I didn't get counseling when I was in detox. There was no treatment. It was I got clean and then got out. Um, it got to the point when I was using heroin that I was just sick if I didn't use it, so I just continued to use it because I didn't want to be sick. My mom says, you're not welcome in our house. Um, you can't live here until you get help. So it was a, a level one lockdown facility rehab. You know, not quite what I was expecting. Lockdown, no contact with the outside world, and treatment while I'm in there the whole time. My parents saw that my brother and sister started going through similar things that I was going through. And my mom was like, there's no way we're going through this again with them. So she picked us up and moved from North Scottsdale down here to Chandler about two and a half years ago. Uh, found Cornerstone. As soon as we walked in the door, we knew this was home. We'd have a conversation one week with my parents. The following week, uh, Pastor Lynn would have his sermon on that. And it was pretty much like every week we'd talk about something, he'd speak on it. Um, so it was the Holy Spirit working through him, and something started stirring in me. That same week, I started uh, going to Camber. I met someone named Tim Beal, who is the pastor there. Um, this guy is super humble, super down to earth. He's someone I felt I could actually relate to and talk to. And he said things that really hit home for me. That's when my faith became my own. And where I understood that it wasn't so much about what I had to do, the religion part of it. You don't wear a suit and tie, you know, you come to church on Sunday. It was a lot more to that. Um, and that's when I, you know, really gave my life over to Christ and said, okay, show me your will. And, that, you know, I see my life progress from there. Through everything that I've done, how messed up I've been and, you know, the mistakes that I've made, um, there's no mistake that I can make that, you know, God still won't love me. He loves me with all his heart and, you know, the fact that I can do all that and be where I'm at because of his love and his grace is absolutely incredible. Um, there isn't anybody that can do that. You know, I always put my trust and my love in man and man has always failed me and God never has. Okay, so how cool was that? Think about this. <laughs> the, think of the, the God, the God who 2,000 years ago looked down in this world and could not sit still, but instead ran into this world and said to you and me, no, 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 you're missing God. Follow me. I'll show you my father is still writing stories today. That he would step into the story of a young couple who went through probably what would be the most tragic moment you could ever imagine in life, the loss of a child. And Jesus steps into the story and says, follow me, I'll show you hope. That, that he steps into the story of a man who spent a lifetime of religiousness and said, you still don't know my dad. Come follow me and I'll introduce you to God. That he steps into the story of a heroin addict. And says, let me show you the real high. 
in life. I don't know if you guys know or not, but in that last story, the young man, Justin, who told about coming to Christ, he's actually on staff here at the church studying for ministry. Is that a crazy story? Don't, don't tell me that God isn't still writing stories. It's just a question of whether or not we're letting him write ours. And my hope is there's, there's some people in this room and you've already made your commitment to Christ and you're already on that journey. And my hope is, is that you've gone far enough with him and he's written enough chapters in your story that right now you are absolutely confident. And you're going, look, I, 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 God has done enough. I've gone far enough with him. And, and I don't know for sure exactly how this turns out, but I know. I know he's taking me to somewhere that's absolutely amazing. But I also know that there are Christians in this room who would say, Lynn, I, I, I can't say that. The truth is, I'm pretty stuck right now. I don't feel like any chapters are really being written. And I guarantee you that there are people in this room and you're on the front side of faith. You, you've never actually made that decision. You've never actually crossed over and said, hey, Jesus be Lord in my life. You've never made that commitment. And you walked into this room tonight and you're shook up. And you're going, I've just got to be honest. This is not what I had planned and this is not what I wanted. There's a part of me that wants to say if this is what God is happening in my life, I'm pretty angry with him. There's some of us who walked into this room tonight and You are so churched up. Tonight was just another night to mark another box. And and you thought, I'll just make God that much happier with me. But if you were honest and transparent in this moment, you know. You know there aren't enough church services to fill the void you're feeling in your heart right now. Some of us walked in this room messed up. Man, it just, it just even feels weird to be here. I, I feel like if I was ever going to follow God, if I was ever going to do this, I probably ought to get a little bit cleaned up before I made any sort of decision. And guys, here's what you got to get in the moment. The Christmas story is the story of a God who comes to us and meets us in the middle of the story and then takes us somewhere absolutely new. See, what you and I have got to figure out is that none of us in this room is big enough, strong enough, smart enough to write the next chapters. And that the most powerful thing you could do tonight is give up. You just say, look, i got to stop writing my story. i got to let God have a shot. And here's the really, really cool part. Did you know that God knew you'd be in the room? He knew you'd be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in, and he knew that you and I would be having the conversation. And he's simply been waiting for you to ask him to write the rest of the story. To say, God, I'm done, and I give up. It's as simple as a prayer. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to bow our heads. I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer, but here's what I want to ask first. I want to ask with every head bowed and everybody's eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. Are you the one? Are you the one who came to the room tonight and said, look, I think I'm a little bit shook up. I'm pretty messed up. I may be churched up. 
but I'm the one who needs to give up. I'm the one that needs to pray that prayer tonight. And I just want to ask if, if that's you, if God's speaking to your heart right now, if, if something in you is saying this is the moment in which your story and the story of God are in an intersection and you need to be praying that prayer, I want you to raise your hand and say, I'm one of those people that needs to pray that prayer. I need to pray. All over this room, people are raising their hand. I need to be praying that prayer tonight. Put them up. I need to be praying that prayer. All over this room. Anybody else? I know I need to be praying that prayer. All right, I'm going to pray a prayer. You can just pray quietly in your seat with me. It ought to go something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, it's me. I'm the one that's pretty shook up, messed up, and maybe even churched up. And I'm just simply coming to you in this moment saying, I get it. I, I'm the wrong one to be writing my life story. And so I'm asking you right now, would you simply come into my life? Would you be my Savior? Not just a Savior. Would you be my Savior? Would you forgive me for my sins? I give up. I give up. And I want you to be Lord of my life. God, let Christmas come into my heart tonight. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, the Bible says God answered it. That your life from this day forward is different than it was till now. And, and here's the deal. A step of faith, the decision for Jesus Christ, is not something you do in secret. It's something you say, hey, I'm, I'm in. I, this is what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm unapologetic and willing to acknowledge it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In the seat back right in front of you, there's a card looks just like this. And it says, yes to God on the top. Which in essence, that's exactly what some of us just did in this room. And I'm going to ask you just to take a moment, uh, fill out both sides. There's just a couple questions on both sides. The band's going to come out and lead us in worship, so you're going to have plenty of time to do it. And then, and then when the service is over, you look at every single exit, you're going to see a yes uh, table there. And just simply take that card, set it on the table. That would be your declaration that says, I made a decision tonight. Will you do that? Christians, how cool, how cool is it that you and I serve a God who is willing to meet us where we are, but loves us too much to leave us there? And how cool is it that you and I just sat in a service together where hundreds of people just met Jesus for the first time. And I think we should tell them what we think about that. That's a pretty cool moment, right? And I just want to say to you, if you made that decision, we're proud of you. We're rooting for you. Our hope is that that was a real-life decision that you're going to live from this day forward and not just a Christmas decision. That you're going to let God begin to write the chapters of your story. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray a quick prayer of thanks to God for all that he's done for us. The band's going to come out, lead us to one last worship song. Let's stand. We'll pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the God that loves us too much to leave us where we are, but is willing to meet us where we are. God, thank you for that story being true 2,000 years ago when you came to this earth as a baby and said to us, follow me, I'll show you God. 
And thank you for being a God who still does it today, who still steps into our lives and says, follow me. I'll show you my father. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.